Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. obviously in our series, and, and as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, um, these series go longer than kind of standard church series because uh, our objective, our goal inside of all of this is to really hone in on each verse, understand its meaning, look at the context, um, and really glean from it what the writer, and in this case the Apostle Paul, um, is actually trying to communicate to us. Over the past two weeks, we've talked about the Colossian heresy. We've talked about the idea that, that what was taking place inside of Colossae is, um, is a rather problematic situation where people are trying to lure, uh, whether it be the Judaizers or whether it be um, pre-Gnostic ideas or whatever, and you can look that up. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating study. But um, whether it's the Judaizers or pre-Gnostic ideas, the concept was to pull the church away from trusting in Jesus alone and start trusting in man's ways, in man's philosophies, in man's ideas. How many of you know that that's still a temptation today? It's still a temptation today. It's one of the great problems in the church, and it is, it is one of the reasons why we have to, as a church, fight for... Um, the inspiration, the inerrancy, the truth of God's word, it's why we have to fight for it. Not so that we can uh, begin to fight each other over words or nitpick ideas, but because it is the benchmark, because it is the standard by which we operate. We can't walk forward if we don't know the path, and God has given us the path clearly in his word. So, so the reason why we are a Bible-believing church is not just because we're trying to obey Jesus in some obscure command. We're obeying Jesus in a very meaningful and real command that he gives to us and the word that he has spoken to us. So it's a very powerful thing. So they were dealing with the Colossian heresy, the issue of facing or dealing with man's ways and traditions and philosophies over God's ways, God's traditions, God's philosophies. I've said this every week up to this point in the series, and I'm going to keep saying it and hammering home on it. And that is that God does not despise philosophy. God just doesn't like your philosophy. <laughs> God does not despise tradition. He just doesn't like our traditions. God doesn't despise principles. He gave us commands to follow, even the New Testament. Smile. He gave us commands. He gave us principles by which we are to live. And the principles that he gets frustrated with, the principles that break his heart because it moves, it moves us away from grace, are the principles that we create in ourselves. So the thousands of laws that we create to keep other laws and all of that stuff. Right? So God just doesn't like those things. So today, we're going to study uh, an, uh, another important piece of this letter in chapter 1, which is Paul's prayer to the Colossians, which I believe to be a model prayer. Within the prayer, we're going to see three essential lessons. They're going to be up on the screen for you. The three essential lessons with respect to this prayer. The first one is that prayer always includes more than mere words. Prayer always includes more than mere words, church. 
We've got to wrap our heads around this idea because if not for this, we're going to, we're going to keep lobbing up prayers and wondering why things don't manifest or things don't take place inside of our lives. And I'll get, I'll get into that in a little bit. Point number two is this one, that prayer is a persistent matter. How many of you, be honest with me, how many of you pray for something God doesn't answer and you give up? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Because prayer is a matter of persistence, or prayer is a persistent matter, whichever way you want to, to say that. And number three, the substance of godly prayer always has pleasing God as its aim. There is never going to be a prayer that you ask for that just pleases you and sets God on edge that he's going to answer. Do you know that? Sometimes he might allow things to happen in your life just so you can realize how much you don't want it. I'll wait until that one sinks in. <laughs> you know, we all, we've all had those. We're like, Lord, can you please take this back from me? I thought you wanted it, Nathan. Yeah, I didn't know that. So, prayer, is all, prayer always includes more than mere words. Prayer is a persistent matter. The substance of godly prayer, and in this case, the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and understanding, always has pleasing God as its aim. And finally, we're going to wrap everything up by connecting the dots to the Colossian heresy, as we learned again last week and the week before. So without further ado, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, these are the words of God. For this reason also, since the day we heard it, that is their faith hope and love, we have not ceased to pray for you and to give and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious mind, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Point number one, prayer always includes more than mere words. Notice the first object of Paul's prayer here. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, the faith, hope, and love of the Christians, the, the Colossian Christians, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here it is, church, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, what does Paul want for them? He wants them to be, and you need to break down the verse a little bit, but he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. How are they filled with the knowledge of God's will? It's not arbitrary like we think. It's not meandering about, hoping we figured it out. It's through his work, as Tina put it. It, it is through the inspired scripture. It's through what he is telling us. And what do we know that to be according to this verse? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice what he says. He says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God or the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how is it that we gain it? It's in this understanding, spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now let's think about the greater context, though, of this letter again. Although Paul is praying for wisdom, although Paul is praying for understanding and consequently the knowledge of God's will, because that's what comes next, 
everything that he writes, he proclaims to them, and he intends to teach them all of these things. Paul does not start his letter, I pray you have the wisdom of God's, uh, the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and understanding, I'll see you when I see you. He doesn't end the letter there. What happens for the next three chapters? As a matter of fact, what happens through the rest of this and the next three chapters? He begins to unpack spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. What is our point that we're getting at? Prayer always includes more than mere words. Paul does not just pray that they'll get smarter about God. Paul imparts to them wisdom and understanding about God. And how did Paul get it? He got it through Jesus. This is why we need to take uh, heed of the words of the inspired writers of Scripture. We need to listen well on what they say. In chapter 1, verse 28, Paul goes on and says this. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So what is Paul sent out to do? To teach us. But what is he teaching with? All wisdom. He gained that somewhere. But look at what he wants that wisdom and that teaching to produce in the Colossian Christians and consequently us. He says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He wants all of us complete in him. You know what that word means? Complete? It means perfect. It means mature. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, when he says that you are to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect, the point is you are to be complete. You are to be mature. You are to be lacking nothing in your life. How many of you would say in your spiritual life, you're lacking something? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> Which means you're lacking integrity. But anyways, <laughs> From that point. I'm, I'm picking, I'm picking, I'm sorry, but I, I love you guys. Okay, so the idea here is that Paul wants to pre present us all complete. That's his job. So we need to take heed of that. Paul doesn't just pray for this stuff. He begins to unpack it. He begins to impart it to the people. So Paul does pray for these Christians, make no mistake, but everything that he prays, he's also imparting to them actively. We might conclude that what Paul is really getting at with this prayer is that, uh, is that the people would receive the spiritual knowledge and wisdom that he has given. That might be what we're, what we're concluding uh, from this prayer. Now, I'm not saying that there are not supernatural things that God gives apart from human agency. That would be things like spiritual gifts. Um, God doesn't necessarily need any of our help to do so. But how many of you know that even spiritual gifts came at times at the laying on of hands? Yes. There were things that the apostles went and laid hands on people and they received. So, interestingly enough, God just plays this part really well with human beings. And so, there are supernatural things like spiritual gifts. What I'm saying is that all too often we forget that God uses human agents or physical means, or things like this to bring about his very purposes. Take scripture, for example. God could give us spirit, a spiritual download from heaven, couldn't he? Mm -hmm. But what did he give us? He gave us his word. He gave us his son, he gave us his word, and he gave us his written word. I suppose that in some sense, God can do anything he wants. Right? God can't lie, just in case you were wondering. In all sense, God can do what he wants. Yeah, God said he can't lie. So there you go. Right? But in some sense, God can do anything he wants. But what he did do for us 
is give us a collection of written letters over thousands of years which teach us truth. Remember Paul's words again to Timothy. This is how important those words of truth are. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. And what? It's profitable. For who? For us. To what end? For teaching. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That's what I, I want to understand that better. Right? I want to be trained in righteousness. Well, where do I go? Well, just pray in my closet for it till Jesus returns. <laughs> sure. Pray. Open the Bible, too. Pray, but you need to open God's word because he gave it to us for a reason. So here, God gives us his written word. Should we pray for people to be taught, approved, corrected, or trained in righteousness? Yes. Should we, church? Yes. Yes, we absolutely should. But to pray for it and then not use the answer that was already given in the word of God is to be a fool. I keep praying. God, when are you going to move? I keep praying. You remember that old story where the guy's praying for deliverance and God says, I sent you a boat, a helicopter. And you remember this whole thing? This is the same idea. We're praying over and over and God goes, I gave you my word. Gave it to you. Here it is. Read, study, pray, invest in this particular truth. So Paul doesn't just pray for them. He begins to impart to them. The examples on this abound. The church uh, is an example of human agency. God has, God has put us together. Can you turn to somebody and say, God has put us together? <laughs> now turn to that person and say, whether you like it or not. There you go. That's the part right there. God has put us together. It's really okay. We've got the church. We've got pastors and teachers. Nathan, I only need the Holy Spirit to teach me and my Bible. You're, the Holy Spirit and your Bible are more important than me. But the Bible that you say you need and the spirit who inspired that Bible says God gave to the church pastors and teachers. That's right. So funny how much we divide God from his word and divide his principles from uh, the, the system that he's created. We fight with God for no reason. Or we fight with God, listen to me, baby, or we fight with God because we've been hurt in the past. Show of hands, how many have been hurt in the past? Every single one of us has been hurt in the past. So, we should just abandon it all because we've been hurt in the past. No. You would never do that. No. You keep pushing in. You keep hungry and thirsting for God. So, God, God gives the church. That's a human uh, institution. God gives pastors and teachers. Those are human uh, creatures. Those are human institutions. He gives the saints. He gives each other to sharpen each other, right? And guess what? He gives us to preach the gospel. You ever wonder why God doesn't just get on a giant megaphone from heaven and say, here's the gospel, we're done. Because he wants you to be faithful to him. He wants you to be faithful to him. I'm going to just take a small rabbit trail here and get on a soapbox for just a second. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells us that Paul tells us that the gospel transforms people's lives, okay? That the gospel has an effect on people's lives. But he also tells us that the gospel will be rejected by the world. He says to the Greek, it appears to be foolishness. And to the Jews, it appears to be a stumbling block. How many of you know this? 
Stumbling block to the Jews, an offense to the Greeks, or foolishness to the Greeks. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Is that true? Yes. This is absolutely true. Okay. In 20 years of ministry, the number, the two top excuses that I hear from people for why they don't want to preach the gospel are, one, they don't want to come across as judgmental, egotistical, or uh, um, setting themselves apart from anybody. And the second reason is they don't want to sound like fools. Do you know what Paul said you're going to sound like? A fool and mean. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else Jesus said? Jesus said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. Our problem with refusing to preach the gospel is we're too consumed with self. We love we. We love me. I know, I'm stepping on some toes. It's fine. You'll get over it. But we love, we love our toes, right? We don't like to be offended by these things. And the whole time we make really good excuses. We say, I'm going to sound like an idiot. Yeah, you already do. Ask your wife. Right? You, you already sound like an idiot. Ask your husband. It doesn't matter. You do. Okay? You're going to sound like a fool for Jesus. The second thing is, truth by definition is exclusive. So when you go to the world and say there's only one way to heaven, they're going to think you're a bigot and judgmental. Thank you. That's true. Stepped on... Her toes last week, but this week, no toes. <laughs> it's really important, church. It's really important. We've got to get back to preaching the gospel. Why? Because prayer is more than mere words, isn't it? Yes. God uses human agency. And he says, blessed are the feet who bring good news. news. I don't know. Are your feet blessed or are they stepped on? Let's try, to, let's try to put that together as we move forward as a church. Back to, the, back to the subject. As Christians, we're often guilty of a kind of faith without works in matters of prayer. Although James 2, 15 and 16 are not directly related to prayer, they do illustrate for us the proper balance between spiritual and physical things. Here's what James says, the brother of Jesus. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now, I put that into the camp of a prayer, because that sounds like many of our prayers. I pray you be warm, I pray you be well filled. Well, what does James say next? He says, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. Say it with me, church. What use is that? No, 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 let's say it like he would say it. I think this is exactly how James would say it. What use is that? That's, that's how it Okay, so... The idea here is you can't just pray. You can't just wish well. Oh, my thoughts are with you. I don't want your thoughts with me. My thoughts are already a mess in my head. Okay? I don't, I don't want your well wishes either because that's not going to get me there. What I want is prayer and action. Amen? That's what I want. That's what you want. If we're honest, that's what we want. Prayer and action. We are a people moving after the things of God, which means prayer includes more than mere words. These things are married together. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 24 and 29, uh, we see the same principle on display. In chapter 29, the focus is on God's promise to a captive Israel. And although this chapter contains one of the most overquoted Bible passages of all time, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, 
Um, the real hope actually has to do with a, real, a, a new heart. Maybe you didn't notice it. Maybe you should dig into it a little bit more. But the real hope that's being presented is that God is going to issue them a new heart. And that new heart comes at the end of their captivity when God says, don't worry about the hardship of captivity. I'm going to bring you through it. But the ultimate hope is a new heart. So that sounds great. What's, what's the point? In verses 11 through 14, God shows us that that hope of Israel fully realized is that the people will call upon the Lord, they will pray, and then it says something very sticky for us when we're reading the Bible. It says that he will listen. He will listen. Well, Nathan, he's God. Isn't he always listening? No. Sometimes your rebellion, you run away. Sometimes in your rebellion, he says, you can have it your way. When you want to come back, when you want to talk to me, I'll listen. But until then, no. We have many people in the world, including many Christians, who continue to live their lives outside of the will of God, and they demand that he listens to them. You know that that's not how grace works, right? right. You don't demand grace. By definition, you are not owed grace. It can't be. This is why it's such a problem to sin that grace might abound. You're not owed grace. You're not owed grace. You were given grace. Very important thing. So back in chapter 24, God made the promise to his people that gets fulfilled in 29, 30, and all the way through 33. In chapter 24, he, he makes the promise, verses 4 through 7 communicate, that this promise includes a new heart. But how does this new heart come about? This is where it gets amazing. How does the new heart of Israel come about? Well, it's just a supernatural event, I guess. No, it's not a supernatural event to which no one can describe it or of which no one can describe or explain. Instead, God gives them a new heart through divine discipline. I'm going to give you a new heart. How am I going to do it? Well, it's going to be painful. How many of you know that your heart has changed over pain and discipline yeah. and transformation yeah. in this life? Yeah. God's not changed his MO in all of eternity. So he goes on and he gives them a new heart through divine discipline. Israel goes into captivity. They're disciplined by God. And that discipline, by the way, is love. God loves those whom he disciplines or disciplines those whom he loves. God creates in them a new heart. In other words, God recreates or God rebuilds or God is, is, is working in them. A new heart might be a way that we want to say. So we've got to put all this together. What does this have to do with the Colossians? Or more accurately, prayer. It's all in how these things come about. God does not say pray and just leave it at that. Prayer is always more than mere words. Paul doesn't ask to give the church wisdom and supernatural wisdom and then just end the letter. I've said that before. God doesn't just say, I'll give you a new heart to Israel. He then works it inside of them. He doesn't send them into captivity just out of spite either. He's much bigger than you are. He's much different than you are. He sends them to captivity because this is the place where the heart is going to be grown or changed in them. He uses that captivity. He uses that discipline. And the fact that he keeps his promise through all of it is what makes us crazy. Because he will never leave us. And he will never forsake us. My goal in bringing this up is to show you that although we must pray, 
And although God is the one who answers prayer, his answers oftentimes come through very real needs. Paul seems to be praying that the Colossians would just welcome this book as he gives it to them, as he teaches them, as he imparts it to them. So number one, prayer always includes more than mere words. Number two, prayer is a persistent matter. Go back to Colossians 1.9. Colossians 1.9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, their faith, hope, and love, look at what he says here. We have not ceased to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you. It's an amazing line, isn't it? Paul writes something similar to this to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Look what he says here. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Where does that sound like it came from? The Colossian letter. It's the same exact observation of these people. They had faith, and it played out in love. Okay? And so then he goes on, and he says, We... Do not, for this reason, we do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayers or in my prayers. Paul says there. We also have a rather famous line in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. You'll all remember this, but it'll be on the screen too. Rejoice always. Say it with me, church. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. We quote that all the time. And pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. Everything, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Hopefully, the fact that I've communicated what Paul said to the Colossians, that he continually prays for them, that I've pointed out that the Ephesians were said to pray without ceasing, or he never ceased to pray for them, and the command given in Thessalonians on never ceasing to pray. Hopefully, you can see that without ceasing is not to be understood in some strictly literal sense. Paul never writes any inspired scripture because he's not ceasing to pray. Paul never uh, takes a breath and sleeps at night because he's not ceasing to pray. We, we get that it's not literal in that fashion, right? So don't, don't put yourself in a prison like that when you're reading God's word. Try to understand it. The term to cease communicates a constant action toward an end or rather a continuation. So, Paul tells the Colossians that he is continually praying for them. How many of you would say that about somebody that you love, somebody that you care for? Oh, I pray for them continually. What is the meaning there? It means that I pray for them on a constant basis as opposed to the people that I don't pray for on a constant basis. It doesn't mean I literally never stop praying for that one person. Otherwise, Paul is also, just make sure you see the logic in this, Paul's contradicting himself. He can't never cease praying for the Colossians and never cease praying for the Ephesians. He can't, he can't do both. You've got to do one or do the other because the second he stops praying for the Colossians to pray for the Ephesians, he's violated his word. You get the point, right? right? This is a continuation. Understand it right So uh, he says to the Ephesians that he's continually praying for them. He says to the Thessalonians that they and we should continually pray. Paul doesn't mean that he's literally not stopping praying. He just means that we got to keep going. Here's the point again. Prayer is a persistent matter. Many of you will remember the parable of the persistent widow from Luke 18. How many of you have read that story? If not, go to your scriptures, read that story this morning. I encourage you to read that story. Now, I'm not going to go into it, but that story, uh, that story is an amazing story. Instead, what I do want you to see 
is that the parable had a clearly stated goal by Jesus at the outset. And that's rare when we're reading a parable. For Jesus to go, hold on a second, before you get confused, here's what I meant. Don't you wish that happened in every passage of the Bible? <laughs> Just in case you're lost, here's what I mean. Here's what he says in Luke 18.1. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Not to lose heart. Persistence in prayer is something that the church today needs to recapture. We've either fallen into a kind of fatalistic viewpoint that says things like, well, listen to this phrase, because I know you've read it, I know you've probably even liked it. When it's not in God's time, you can't force it. When it is in God's time, you can't stop it. Well, great, I'll just stop writing it. Thanks. Thanks for that. That's terribly discouraging. There are things in God's time, no question. But to make everything that way is just downright wrong. And it makes the scripture contradict itself. There's no way Joshua makes the sun stand still. There's no way that God relents from the calamity that he's about to bring on anyone if your prayer doesn't change anything. So some people fall into that camp of fatalism. God's just going to work it out no matter what. Or we have a short-sighted view of prayer that teaches that the only thing prayer gives us is the stuff we're asking for. How many of you know that if you're persistent in prayer, God sometimes works in you a more loving, more gracious, more compassionate, more patient heart? How many of you know that? These are, the, these are the, uh, the side effects, if you will, of prayer that God is actually answering. And so we fall for the short-sighted view. God, give me a new house. God, give me a new car. God, give me a new job. And God's going, because I said no, I'm working in you patience. Right? So that's a really important thing. So number one, prayer is, the first point, prayer always includes more than mere words. Number two, prayer is a persistent matter. And finally, number three, this is, the substance of godly prayer always has pleasing God as its aim. Let's wrap it up with this. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will, look at this list, it's amazing, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for, here's the purpose of even all of those things, the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints in life. The goal here is multifaceted. And apart from a basic review, uh, I think we all get what these things are communicating, right? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord or to please Him in all respects. But there seems, again, to be two popular and yet strange views that have taken root in the church today. The first view is called hyper-grace. first view is called hyper-grace. This view states that grace covers us, but it does so in such a way as to make this instruction unnecessary. I'm covered by grace, so why would I ever please God? What's it matter? I'm covered by grace. Grace, 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 grace. And if you tell me otherwise, you're preaching works. That's what I hear a lot. Why be in any understanding? Why walk after God and be pleasing to him? 
Are we not products of grace? The answer is yes, but grace doesn't work that way. If you interact with a person of this viewpoint and you preach the actual word of God, if you interact with a person like this and you say, you are, tr you are right, we are saved by grace through faith, that's amazing, believe it, stand on it. But the Bible also says, in view of mercy, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. They're going to respond and say, you're a Pharisee. You're a modern-day Pharisee because you're talking about works-based salvation. I'm talking of no such thing. I'm talking what the Bible says. <laughs> Church, we're saved by mercy. But do you understand that being set apart as a people of God is a glorious prestige? It is a glorious thing that we live in. And so living to his honor is pleasing. Living to his honor is a joy, or at least it should be. So on one side, you have hyper-grace. The second viewpoint is that God is just perpetually angry all the time, even towards his own children. Listen to me, church. This, this view is more popular than you know. And almost every popular preacher that you probably listen to because of the church you go to preaches some sort of derivation of this. The view states that no matter what you do, God is still somehow always still mad at you. You know that the Bible does say that God burns with righteous indignation, He burns with indignation every day? That sucks. He burns with indignation every day. Somebody caught that and laughed. But He burns with indignation every day. But to the objects of His mercy, He is passionately loved. That's why Romans says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, this view says that God is just constantly mad. You're never going to gain his approval. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, you probably heard a sermon preached one time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. First of all, it's a phenomenal sermon. You should Google it, you should read it, you should understand it. The problem, though, is that modern, under, modern interpreters of these things, modern pastors, have converted sinners in the hand of an angry God to, to apply to every Christian possible. Because why? Because we still make mistakes. But we're not sinners in the hand of an angry God. We're not little gods either. We're not jumping up there, dancing around like we own the place. We are saints in the hands of a loving God. Yes, right. Also a loving God that will crack you on the butt. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to myself. Because that part I love. And no, it's not just because I have four kids. I just think that that's beautiful. The scripture says God disciplines those he loves. And the facts are the facts. He's disciplining us. Why? Not because we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because we're saints in the hand of a loving God. Yes, Please start to get your definition of love right. Because without it, you're going to end up in one of these two camps. You're in hyper grace or God's just always mad all the time. Look at what Paul says or is praying for again. He's in verse 10. He says that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That last view says we can never walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, I don't know why it's written there then. Please him in all respects. How many of you have heard the statement that says, I can never, I can never stop sinning. I can never stop sinning. It's just not possible. There's no way. And if you say that, you're advocating for sinless perfection. 
Well, nobody's ever gotten there, so don't worry about it, okay? But second of all, you've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. The scripture here tells us that we can bear fruit in every good work, that we can please him in all respects, not some respects, all respects. Do you, do you, do you think that Paul's telling us the truth, or do you think this is just nonsense? It's the truth. Through the knowledge of Jesus, through the spirit who resides in us, we can do the things that God has called us to. Increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Hey, did you check that out? Did you see that? How many of you want patience? No, no, you raise your hands because I've already talked to you about it. We want patience. We want more patience. How does it come? According to his glorious might. And guess what his glorious might sometimes does? It says no to your prayer request. Yeah. Because he's building your patience. He's growing. And in the end of all this, we are to joyously give thanks to the Father. Church, we have to understand that we've been saved by grace through faith. God has also saved us from sin and death, but he has saved us unto holiness and life. We are in a process like Israel in the Old Testament of having a new heart molded into us. And guess how it comes? through this crazy wilderness called life. He molds it into us. We are to grow and we are to walk after God. And when we do, the Bible tells us that we are pleasing to Him. How many of you want to jump up and down knowing that you're pleasing to Him? You're pleasing to Him. Why? The sacrifice has been made for you. You were made righteous. You are now pure and can present your body to Him every day in a pleasing fashion. Never forget the sacrifice that was made for you and the sacrifice that was made so that your life would be pleasing to God the Father. So let's put all of it together. When it comes to fighting back against man's wisdom or tearing down those ideas that seek to come against the knowledge of God, it requires our maturity. It requires perfection. It requires growth, moving on to something. Our growth in both wisdom and understanding. Paul knows this intimately, and that's why he prays for the Colossians, but it's also why he imparts to the Colossians. This should be our model prayer when it comes to fellow believers. All too often we pray meaningless, repetitious prayers and that do no good whatsoever. What we need to pray for, specifically, are the things that the scripture tells us will change the hearts and grow us to maturity. But as we've also seen today, it is vital to know that our prayer must be coupled with our action. It must be coupled with our actions. If we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in their understanding, we should be willing to sit down with them and to help them grow in that understanding. Yeah. It's one of the most joyous parts of my job, of my calling, to sit down with people. It's gotten to the point where I sit down with so many people that I can't figure out which direction I'm heading, but it is really awesome to sit down with people and to share their stories and to hear their life and to understand with Barney here and Mark here, we can do more of that. And we can walk beside you. But we do not want to teach you things. and that, or we, we don't want to just pray for you. We want to teach you. We want to guide you. The final result of all of this is that as Christians, uh, uh, is that a Christian who is prayed for, a Christian who is sharpened by another, a Christian who is willing to mature and grow, will be steadfast and patient. Because God's power is working inside of you. And they will do all of these things with joy inside of their heart. You know that it's a joy to follow God? Sometimes it doesn't feel that way because we've been, we've been confused, to be honest with the church. 
Sometimes it doesn't feel that way because we have been confused by all of the man-made teachings. You know what I mean? We've been confused by every idea under the sun. But if we will run back to God, if we will do it His way, if we'll rest in the arms of mercy, in the arms of grace, and we will look forward to pleasing Him because He's made us that way, serve Him to you. And we can do so all the days of our Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.